0: Welcome back to the Jacob Kelly interview series. I'm your host, Jacob Kelly, and today is a takeaways episode. And the takeaways episode is where I sit down with you one on one and we discuss my most recent interview. And today we're discussing my interview with Kubla. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to the full interview yet, Kubla is a musician based in Toronto. He recently released his debut album, Close to the Sun, which is a fantastic album. I've listened to it a ton. I will not be surprised if it is included in my Spotify wrapped this year. So I highly recommend you check it out. He's really, really talented. He's a more contemporary guest than we've had on this show thus far. Um, I guess Mike Hill is relatively contemporary, our first guest, but the three guests before Kubla was uh, Peter Freestone, who was Freddie Mercury's personal assistant, Fred Mandel, who is a session and touring musician who went on tour and worked on albums with Queen, Alice Cooper, and John, Pink Floyd. Uh, we had Howard Bloom, who was a PR guy in the music industry in the 70s and 80s. Some of his clients are like Michael Jackson, Bob Marley, Prince. And so it's like all these like old school music guys. And now I flip the script a little bit when contemporary. And I plan on having more contemporary guests on here. You know, I, I talked about the intro to the podcast that I want this show to obviously be a study and a l- l- way to learn about kind of the history of art, culture, and creativity. But I also don't want it to just be reminiscent of that. I want it to be, to be a celebration of the current and future um, of art, creativity, and culture. And so that's when I find someone contemporary who I think I'll be able to have a really interesting conversation with, who I think is really talented. I'm going to ask them to come on the podcast. There's a couple other things too with that. Kind of what guests will have on the show. One, I would love to see more women on this podcast. It's been dude for the first five episodes. Um, So I would like to get more women on the show. And I would also, this show will not just be music-focused it'll be like i said all arts creativity and culture so some like the recent interviews i've or some of the recent requests and interview outreaches i've made have been to i mean some more music people but also uh, people who've created video games i have some different actors actors on here directors producers kind of all the full spectrum of art and so i uh, eventually going to be a bit of more varied guest type but right now it's a lot of music guests and that's fine i love talking about music it's really fun for me and so i was really excited to get to sit down with Kubla on the podcast and I first met Kieran, A.K.A. Kubla, at the beginning of the year. Actually, like I had like January seventh, and I only know the exact date because I went and looked. Because it was the first day. It was the same day that I hosted with my friend Danny our first Toronto Creator Meetup um, in Toronto, in Toronto, obviously in Toronto. And the same day I went to one of Kubla's shows because a friend of mutual friend invited me to the show. So I met him then. And then a few months later, we went for dinner. When I ended up like, it was, I didn't really like meet him that first day. Like he was kind of playing in a hotel bar and it was a group of us that were there. And he kind of popped over in a break and said, what's up? And then went back. So said, hello, would be surprised if he remembers that. But the first proper time I met it was a few months after that, we went for dinner. Uh, me, him, Cheyenne, the friend who invited me to his first show, she's or original show that I saw. And my friend Danny, who I host the meetups with, who's also friends with Cheyenne and Kubla. And we went for dinner and we went to this like Korean barbecue spot and had some great chats. I was like, wow, this is like, Kieran was like, this is a really interesting guy. He's a really deep thinker. I think we'd have a really interesting conversation. We were talking about podcasting, but I didn't invite him on the show then. But I was like kind of leaving that. I was like, oh, he could be an interesting guest to, to sit down and talk about all these things that I enjoy talking about with. And then he invited me to his show for Canadian Music Week. I thought it was fantastic. It was like an eight, nine piece band at Longboat Hall here in Toronto. And it was just an awesome performance. Like he crushed it. I was like, you know, I think this, like, I think I want to ask him to call my show. And then went to a party at Cheyenne's house a few weeks after that. And I remember I hadn't listened to his album yet. And I had about 30 minutes from my place to Cheyenne's and the album is about 30 minutes long. So I was like, let me put this on. And I just thought the album was so good. And I was like, you know, I'm just going to ask him at the party. And I asked him and he said, yes. And a couple weeks later, we were sitting down to record this podcast and it was July 5th or July 7th or something like that. I think July 5th. I could be wrong. Um, but it was a, like a disgustingly hot day in Toronto that day. Like probably one of the hottest days of the summer. And I was I trekked out to his place from my apartment, carrying all of my gear on the bus, and then a walk, and then another bus, and then a walk to his house. It's actually not that bad. Like I make it sound worse than it is, but it was like swelteringly hot. And I have like my camera, I have my camera, a tripod, my laptop, microphones, everything. The only thing I didn't have was lighting, which Kieran actually texted me before when I was on the bus and he's like, yo, which of these two lights do you want? Wanna use? And to be completely honest, I am not a I'm the opposite of whatever a gearhead is. Like I've kind of cobbled together a podcasting setup. So it's not even that great. Like I had some issues with the audio this time because of the setup and like, I don't really like I'm just cobbled together. Like my, my strength is not in the gear. And so I just kind of Googled quickly and took a shot and guess at which lighting I thought would be best. And then yeah, I got to his house. He brought me downstairs into, he has a, a basement studio in his house, uh, which was thankfully air conditioning. Cause I was sweating by the time I got there, um, set things up. And it's like, I just The in-person podcasts are fun. I love to be able to do them in someone's space, like in someone's studio where they make their, or where he makes his music. And like, I sat down on this like vintage pink couch and it's just like, I I love love the studios because like, it's just, you can feel the creativity kind of like in the air. And even like in Kieran's position, like in his basement studio, you can feel it at the decorating. Like I was, I sat down on this like vintage couch and I had two amps next to me and I look over at, at Kieran who's sitting on like another couch. And to his left is like three keyboards and a xylophone. And like it's just cool. It's like you can like and you can feel kind of just that creativity in the air. Like even partway through. I don't I don't think this this comes through in the podcast. I think the way I edited the audio, you don't actually hear it. But at one point his roommates, who he also who are also in his band, started like playing music upstairs. Like they started like playing on the piano. And it's just like that's they're just like jamming, like having fun. So like you could just there's just like this this vibe in a in a creative space like that, and it was is fun to like sit down and try to capture some of that essence with the interview. And yeah, it was cool. So I, I was set set up set up the podcast in a space and we went for over two and a half hours. I think we cut kind of, like not like not nothing major. Like we're just like after the edit, I guess, yeah I could say. Um ended up being just about two and a half hours, but recorded for over two and a half hours. I was not expecting it to be that long. He actually had someone coming to set up, I think it was like Wi-Fi or something, in his house <laughs> and I went for so long the the guy who was setting it up to like sit outside for like 15 minutes but he went for two and a half hours and the crazy thing about that too is like I did it without really looking at my notes and like the way I do a podcast the way I do these interviews is very like I rely on my notes very heavily because I do such a detailed research that I want to ask very pointed and specific questions based off all of this really detailed research that I do so I reference my notes quite a bit And in this specific interview, I like kind of referenced in the beginning and I wasn't actually like the way I open that interview, it feels like I'm starting it by trying to do like a misdirection deep cut, which is kind of what I did, I guess. But like, so I looked at my notes at the beginning to make sure I had the address right. And then I only looked at the notes partway through the interview to get a very direct, specific definition of something. And that was it. Like I didn't open my notes pretty much the entire interview. I did it without looking. And part of that is one, because like I I know Kieran, we have a rapport. So we are able to kind of just flow really nicely. And two, because I mean, there's just a certain energy when you do a podcast live that you lack when you do it remotely. And so it was really cool. I liked the energy of doing it in person. I think I'm a slightly better interviewer in person. I didn't have to use my notes. Things flowed really naturally. I just felt, I felt on my game during that interview, but that doesn't mean necessarily that all of my interviews moving forward are going to be in person. In fact, most of them will probably still be remotely. There's a level of convenience that comes with doing it remotely. That's great. And there's also like, you can obviously expand the reach of guests when I do it remotely as well. And so I don't want to limit who can come on this podcast. If I'm only relying on them being in the city of Toronto or me having to travel to do the interviews, I think the remote ones are great. The technology to do remote interviews is so good now that the audio, like the, the quality of the interview won't be diminished. Honestly, it'll probably be better because I always find a way to mess up the gear some way, somehow when i record a recorded person. And so I'm still going to do the remote interviews. And you can get like 90% of the way there. And I'm willing to sacrifice that 10% for the convenience for being able to to reach more guests. But it was really fun to have, be able to do this podcast with Kieran in person. I don't think it would have been the same had we done it over Zoom. And so when the opportunity is there to do a podcast yes, in person, I'm going to take it. But that doesn't mean I'm going to limit who we can get on this podcast, who we can do interviews with, by only doing them in person. But I'm glad we did this one in person. And it was cool. It was like really validating for myself to be able to do it without notes. I think that's part of it. It's like, I think mean, you're able, like in an in-person interview, you're able to focus more on the person that's sitting across from you. It's a little bit harder when you're doing it, looking at a screen. But I do have some, a new tactic I mentioned on a previous takeaway that I'm going to try that it might help make me be a little more present in the remote ones. Um, not that I'm not present, but make it easier to focus. So we'll see. But either way, that's the story of the Kuba interview. Um, over two and a half hours, it was a lot of fun. And I was like, I, mean, I spent the last two days listening to it. because it's a two and a half hour interview, so I couldn't listen to it all yesterday before I recorded this. Uh, so I've been listening to it over the last couple of days. So I'm excited to dive into some of my takeaway from the interview. I have quite a few here, so I'm going to try to get through them as, not as quickly as I can, but as efficiently as possible. And the first, kind of the first takeaway, I guess, that I have from my interview with, with Kieran is really like... Pretty much how we opened the interview for the most part, and it's around identity, right? And I've I've kind of oscillated back and forth here between calling him Kubla and Kieran because Kieran is his real name, Kubla is his performer, his stage name, I guess you could say. And it was interesting. I'm right? I'm fascinated by people who go by a different name as a performer, and like well, how that changes, how they change, what where that what that identity means to them. And I mean, in Kieran's case, what we kind of settled on in the, in the interview was that Kieran is for the person, Kubla is for the people. So when Kieran is talking with you one on one, he's Kieran, but when he's speaking to a crowd, when he's performing he's kubla. He's kubla. I'm sorry, my, my voice. I, I I noticed that in the interview. Sometimes my voice like trails off with the last, like the last syllable sometimes. But identity interesting, I like think embodying another identity. What I what I wrote down here in my notes for the takeaway that identity is for is not necessarily f- even for you. It's for how other people will perceive you. You know and and by having something that gives people to perceive you in a different way it gives you the space to operate a bit differently and so that's to me that's how i see that was kind of like my takeaway from this is like the identity isn't it's like it can be to give yourself it like does two things at once i guess like i don't think necessarily one of these things comes first but what i wrote down is identity is for how other people perceive you and so if they perceive you differently it gives yourself the space to act differently. And if you know that space is there, well, you will therefore act differently when you embody that persona, which I think is really interesting. And I don't think I necessarily have the ability. I don't know if I like, I'm thinking about it. I don't necessarily know what that would look like for myself or if there even as a way for me to apply that to myself as a, a creative person, like especially with the creative things that I do, meaning the podcasts and the writing for the most part of my primary two things. I don't necessarily know if I need a separate identity for those. It makes sense for music. It makes sense for people who perform in front of an audience, but I don't necessarily perform in front of an audience. I'm also like, that sounds really going I was gonna say I'm also an authentic person, but having an identity isn't authentic. I think it's actually just like an enhancement of your existing personality. But yeah, I don't know. I don't necessarily know if there's a way where I can like tie that to myself, but it's just an interesting idea, like what identity actually means for you as an artist. The next takeaway that I had here too, which is a was record your practice and watch it back. Right? We were talking about intentional practice as an artist, which is actually a little bit easier to do as a musician where you can like practice the same like guitar riff over and over and over again. But like writing, you can't necessarily write the same line over and over and over again. But we were talking about intentional practice as an artist and I was saying how like with, as a basketball player, you can just shoot free throws. And if you want to get better free throws, you shoot free throws. If you want to get better layups, you do layups. If you want to get better at Three-pointers, you shoot more three-pointers. And one thing that Kieran said was interesting, which we didn't really necessarily get into, like, the angle I want to talk about again, which is, like, for those in, those parts of creativity that you can't do repetitiously, like, you can't just write a sentence over and over again. Like, you can't just write a specific lyric over and over again and get better at it, but you can practice the same guitar riff over and over and over again. But what he did end up saying that I thought was interesting, even though we didn't necessarily... And that's on my fault of the interview for not clarifying my question, but, like... Which I only realized when I listened back to it. But which actually ties into what I'm about to say, which is for those things that you can do repetitiously is to record yourself doing them and then watch it back and see where your gaps are and work on getting better at those things. And so for myself, what that means is like listening to my podcasts, taking notes on what I think I did well, what I think I didn't do well, and then setting an intention not to do make all of the improvements at once, but to improve on the specific aspects and focus on improving on those specific things. And to me, I guess that's kind of intentional practice, but the hard thing is like when you practice, especially in podcasting, when you practice is when you play. Like you have to make the improvements at game time. Like I can't just sit here and this is like a a very common podcast thing that a lot of, I mean, I had to do it. Like you all, and I still have like some audible fillers whether it be, um, yeah, awesome, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm is the one that I've had for a while lately, is like I can't just sit here in my office and not go mm-hmm, and then when a podcast happens, just not go mm-hmm. Yes, like you can kind of do it in like an everyday conversation, but to me, it's like a different switch that flips off of my brain when I sit down to do an interview versus when I'm just having a conversation with somebody. But the, back to the takeaway is like to just find, record yourself, Doing the thing and watch it back and understand where the gaps are and where you can improve. That works if you are an actor. That works if you're a podcaster. That works if you are, I mean, a writer is kind of tough because, yeah, writing is kind of tough, actually. It's anything with like a know, performative element to it. I don't know, but either way. But writing, I guess is tough. This is the problem with doing these with one take with no like, real thought process, it's just kind of ripping off the top of my head is sometimes like where I think I'm taking my takeaway doesn't go. But I do like the idea of like actually reviewing yourself, doing the thing and seeing where you can get better. And then, and that's something I honestly used to do more with the podcast. I had like a period like a year ago where I was trying to do it for every single interview. And then I, what tends to happen when I do things like that is I go zero to a hundred And my notes became so detailed that it took me like hours and hours and hours and hours and hours hours to do it. So I eventually stopped doing it. And so I needed to find like a middle ground where I could do it a little bit more quickly. Because what I was doing was I was literally listening. I would listen to my question, stop it, write down the timestamp of when I asked that question, write out the full question, exactly how I asked it, review how I wrote it out, then listen to the answer and took notes. One took notes on how I asked the question and took notes on how the guest answered the question. What? Did I think they were answering it well? Did I think this question could be used again? Did it, why, if it didn't work, why didn't it work? Should I try it again? Should I not try it again? And I've doing that for like every single question of all my interviews. That's just too much. So there's like a bit of a happy medium where that did become overwhelming, but I did that for myself and I watched a couple other interviewers, mainly I think it was Zane Lowe and the guy from inside the actor's studio, whose name I can't remember right now, who I actually really didn't enjoy as an interviewer. I'll go on the record and say that. A lot of people love him. Not my jam. Zane Lowe, on the other hand, is probably my favorite interviewer on the planet. Um, and so I took notes, and I did learn some things that I have applied to the process now. And so I need to get back to it, but I don't think it needs to be quite as intensive. Like things that I took away, I think I can spot without having to do like the mind, the frame by frame breakdown of an interview. But either way, the main takeaway here is that to record yourself, to not necessarily I guess even record yourself, it's to review yourself doing your your art, is my takeaway. The next one is that the rules are arbitrary. You know, here were talking about how, like artists, what artists have to do now is like they have to make TikToks and it used to be they have to submit their songs to blogs and it used to be this, this is like, and people sent like, we create these arbitrary rules that we all feel like we have to follow. It feels like now if you want to be an artist, you have to go on TikTok. You have to make your songs designed to be, to go viral on TikTok. And we just create these arbitrary rules that everyone thinks you have to follow. But like, that's not necessarily the only way. We just, as, as as people, we tend to accept one thing as the only way to do something. We don't explore the other possible ways of doing things. And I just think it's a good reminder that there are other ways of doing it, like in a, in a content creator lens. Right now, it feels like if you want to grow on YouTube or if you want to grow on social media, you have to make vertical videos, like a YouTube short, an Instagram reel, a TikTok. That's how you grow on social media. True, but it's like, is that the only way? i do not even get into the fact that I don't believe them as a long-term play when it comes to content and brand building. I do not believe in shorts, which is a whole other conversation for another day. But the thing is, is that right now that just feels like that's how you grow. And that's what everyone's doing. Or, you know, you have to make this like Mr. B style content, which works. The same thing with music. Making TikToks has the potential to blow up one of your songs. That works. But that's not the only way. But we create these arbitrary rules in our head, and just as a society, we create these rules that we all feel like we have to follow. But you don't have to. There are. There's always another way. There's a, this book I just purchased. It. I haven't actually read it, but it's over the last like six months. It's been mentioned to me quite a few times. It's called the third door, where it's like everyone thinks you can even go on the front door or the back door, but there's always like a, a way. If you run down the side of the building and jump up on a box, you can jump through a window, which is the third door. And so there's always a third door. There's always another way. You don't have to go through the front door or the back. There are multiple avenues. The rules are arbitrary. The next takeaway here, which comes into like the creative process, is that you have to keep the process playful. It doesn't mean the art itself has to be playful. or that like, it, I think, the, the, I don't, sorry, I, Keep the process playful, and that doesn't mean that the art that comes out of the playful process can't be serious, right? Like I think my friend Cheyenne, who I mentioned at the beginning of this, wrote an an article about Kieran. It's called "Kubla's Beautiful Game," and I highly recommend you read it. If you like my interview with Kieran, you're going to like this this piece by Cheyenne. And it, you know, Kieran tries to keep things playful in his process, tries to keep them fun. And you know, I am trying to like remember to do that more in my life now than I rap. Cause I again back to like the, the podcast note-taking review thing where it's like, it becomes, the, it was, starts as like fun thing to like notice gaps in my, in my interviewing and how I can improve and studying other people. And it's like fun. But then I always like add these layers onto whatever I do and it becomes unfun very quickly because I make it so serious. Like it was zero to a hundred. Like when I was screenwriting a few years ago and I haven't a while because it became such a serious thing. And I just didn't have time for it was I like get originally started, like, oh, I'll do a page a day. And then I was all like, do three pages a day. And then it became, oh, I have to write for 90 minutes every single day. I will start at 7 p.m., I will finish at 8 30 pm. And then from 8:30 to 9:30, I will study screenwriters so I can get better. And so sending, it's just like, what happened to this fun hobby I was doing? It's just become this serious thing with all these rules that I create for myself that I have I, these arbitrary rules that I create for myself that I have to follow. And then the process kind of becomes unfun. And so find ways to keep the process playful. And again, that doesn't mean that it do, what you produce isn't legitimate, isn't serious. It can be very serious. It can be very legitimate. But I guess what it comes down to is like these, these creative career paths that we all aspire, you know, that you and I aspire to, to, to live. We do it because we think it's fun. And we think, but like if you start taking all the joy out of that process. Like, what's the point? You know, if you don't get to experiment, if you don't get to have fun, you know, now that's like another take with that too. It's like experiment with your process. Try to break your process and do it in different ways. You know, this is a little bit different, a little bit different, but like Bert Kreischer, who is a comedian that I absolutely love. I think some people like discount him for taking your shirt off when he performs, which is actually like something he does strategically, which we don't have to get into. Like, I encourage you to go and listen to some of his, like, more serious podcasts. Like, not his show where he's, like, making jokes with his friends and stuff. Like, listen to him on The Moment with Brian Koppelman. It's probably the best one I've heard, but listen to him on The School of Greatness. Listen to him with Lex Friedman. Although that not quite as good, but listen to him on these more serious podcasts and, like, You'll understand he does things in a very specific way. He's very committed to the craft. But one thing that he does that I think is really interesting is he works on his set, his hour-long set, what will be become his special, and he starts to get to a place where it's working, but like there's some things that could change, and he's still ironing out. And then he will get really drunk and go and do that set. And then he'll get really high and go and do the set. And he does that on purpose to break the special, to stress test it, to see what fucking it up will lead him to what will he discover by doing it drunk that he would never have discovered sober? What will he discover doing it high that he never would have discovered drunk? And he like does it because he knows he will mess up, he will make mistakes. But in doing that, it will lead him to new discoveries that will make the process better, that will make the special better. And you should do the same thing with your process. I'm not saying you have to get drunk or high and try to create But I'm saying change things up, do things in a different manner and see how that lands with you. We get into these routines, we create these arbitrary rules that we feel like we have to follow and we just kind of stick to these things and we never question our actions sometimes. We just get so caught up in the flow and the routines of how we do what we do and why we do what we do that we never take a minute to actually break those things. And so experiment with your process. Like I'm currently, as of today, I started a new routine where... For a long time, and like my routine changes all the time because I just, I have to have some form of ADD because I get like, or ADHD because I get bored if I process and then I layer my routine and I switch it up constantly. And then I eventually just come back to a process or to a routine I'd done before. So I, I've done this like a year or a bit ago, but I'm trying it again where I, my creating time is first thing in the morning. I mean, like my morning routine is get up, go to the bathroom, brush my teeth and sit down on my desk and start making things. I do that one because I want to make sure I could do that without, you know, because I'd been creating at night. So now I'm creating in the morning again. And I just like totally inverted the like flip the process on its head. I'm not doing it at night. I'm doing it in the morning now. Even though I'm recording this at night, but like for the most part, I'm trying this new, this new routine. I'm experimenting my process. What happens if I do it in the morning versus if I do it in the night? I mean, I'm a day in, but I felt more focused this morning. I felt less stressed throughout the day because I wasn't antsy to get to start working on my stuff because I'd already done that, and so just experiment with your process, right? Like Kieran, as an example, Kubla had a period where he was doing a song a day, and some good stuff came out of that, and now he's trying to create in a more casual way, you know, where there are moments to focus, but there's also time where it's just like you kind of just like follow your creative bliss and see where that leads you, and. The thing is, there's no wrong way to create something. And so just experiment with your process. You know, like Kieran, another thing he said too, which I thought was interesting on the podcast was like the predator versus prey approach. Like a predator goes out for one to two hours a day. They get their food and they just kind of hang out for the rest of the day. Versus a prey is frantic. 24 hours a day. They're always on guard. They're always running around. They're always looking over their shoulder. They work all the time. And the ideal is to work like a predator, to go out, do the thing you need to get done, get it done, and then just kind of chill. Not chill, but like just live a little bit more casually. I don't know exactly. He said it in a much better way. It was Naval Ravikant, who Kieran was quoting. I'm quoting Kieran, who was quoting Naval Ravikant. But this predator versus prey approach, right? There's different ways to to create. There's different ways to look at your creative process. And don't just stick to one because you think that's the only way that you can create wow, I have so many more takeaways. Now, let me just get a drink of water before we dive into this next one. Resistance. What is the resistance? The resistance, according to Stephen Pressfield, is an unseen force that prevents all creatives from sitting down and actually doing creative work. And Kieran and I talked about the resistance a little bit. And a lot of creatives feel like the resistance is like this feeling of being burnt out. But what Kieran kind of explained to me on the podcast is like resistance is convincing yourself you need to do other things that aren't the, your actual process you know it's 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 common with all creatives where sometimes the hardest thing is just sitting down in the chair and doing the fucking work as an as a writer like there's a saying that like most writers prefer <laughs> most writers like the idea of having written in the act of writing itself where they like to say they wrote this book but they don't actually like writing the book which comes back to like, why don't you like writing the book? How do you make that process more fun? Break your process, find ways to make it fun anyways. And so resistance is this where you've convinced yourself you have to do other things before you can start creating, you know, like for, uh, this is like the stupidest one you can imagine, but I, myself for a while was like, I have to check Twitter before I start writing. Why no idea, but that's the resistance. Well, I have to clean my house before I start, before I start creating. I, the resistance, that is the resistance. There is a level of, with that specific example, there's like a level of validity to like needing a clean space or the focus. I'm very much like that, but still the resist part of the resistance, which a lot of us don't necessarily realize is that it's, it's those things that we feel we convince ourselves have to get done before we can start creating. And most of the times it's not valid. You don't need to be doing those things. You know, it's how Kieran put it. I actually think this is from The War of Art, which is Stephen Pressfield again, which is you want to ignore your urges and do what's important. Don't do what you think is urgent. Do what's important. What your urges, what do you feel like doing? versus What should you be doing? You know, it's interesting. Now that I'm like speaking loud, it's like, I'm excited. Kieran and I will definitely do another podcast at some point in the future. There's no way we don't. And it's like, how do we... Because I want to ask him this. It's like how does keeping the process playful, but also ignoring your urges and doing what's important? How do those two things live in harmony? And I'm not like a everything has to be this or that. I think both of these things can exist, but I'm curious to hear his perspective on how those two things exist together. So that's a question for for the next podcast, whenever that that ends up happening. Next takeaway here is around universal acceptance, and these next these next takeaways are fun. You know, I I put out earlier this week when you're listening to this episode today, this morning on Tuesday when I'm recording this. Um, in my newsletter, which if you aren't subscribed to, I highly recommend you go and check out. It'll be linked down below. And when in my newsletter, I send out my essays around what it means to do our well, where I try to unpack different artistic problems and questions and concepts that I'm just like wrestling with my head. And usually what happens is I'll study a, a one of the greatest artists in history and I will study them for like two months, and then I will learn some specific lessons and I'll take it away and I will apply it to like modern creatives and creators. And so like right now, the most recent one I believe was a essay on, oh, how you need to, why you need to live your life as a creative. If you're only creating, you're actually doing it. It's actually detrimental to your art if you spend all of your time creating. And that was a lesson I learned from James Cameron. I'm, I'm sorry if you hear that. That's a mister for our crested gecko. I don't think you can actually hear it. I often apologize for noises that I realize after the fact you can't hear. But anyways, if you did hear that, that was a mister for my crested gecko. But the next essay I'm working on, it will either be something inspired by Simon Sinek or Salvador Dali, depending on the order in which I I write those. And I'm also working on another essay right now around the dilution of greatness and the what. I, so that will be sent out in my newsletter. And a lot of these takeaways here tie into the dilution of greatness. And where I was going with all this is earlier today, I sent out a segment from the interview. So what I do is I not only send my essays, but I will also be publishing these interviews, the transcripts on this newsletter. There'll be the full one, like the the Kieran interview. I believe it was 41 pages long. So I ended up taking like a three, four, three or four pages, I think, from that, maybe a little more three to five pages. It was like 3,200 words. And I published that as the newsletter. And it's all around the dilution of greatness. And it's actually called the murder of art, except it's a quote that Kieran had in that section of what the murder of art is. And so a lot of these next takeaways are going to be kind of around that. But long story short, if you aren't subscribed to my newsletter, make sure you do so so you don't miss my next essay or the next interview. But anyways, the, the first takeaway kind of having this is that like universal acceptance is a bit of a myth. You know, like everybody liking the same thing is a bit of a myth. And sometimes universal acceptance is just a big marketing budget, which is like, damn, I never heard anybody put it that way before. But like, sometimes it's like everyone watches something because it's just everywhere. And it's like, it's just everywhere. So everyone watches it. And this idea of the dilution of greatness is that essentially that like, there's so much stuff out there that like the, the great stuff isn't punching through anymore. And I think that that's true. And so sometimes the stuff that punches through is just the big marketing budget. But whether that, but yeah, universal acceptance, like there's good, like, I think the example Kieran gave is like, there's two bands he mentioned, which is Snarky Puppy and Wolfpack, which are massive in his world, but like are only relevant to like 1% of the population. And so it was like, is that universally accepted? Does it, what is universal acceptance? Is it universally accepted by every single person? Is it universal accepted by your specific genre? Like what is a bit of a myth? And sometimes it's just a big marketing budget. Would Barbie or Oppenheimer been as big of a deal if they couldn't have spent money on marketing? No, of course not. Like Both of those movies and especially Barbie. And don't get me wrong, Barbie was a great movie. I enjoyed it. But had they not had the marketing budget they had, would it have been as big of a deal? I don't know. I would argue probably not, but I could be wrong. But the thing with greatness, too, is, is, and Kira made a good point, is like greatness is subjective, right? Like, we all have different tastes. So what is great to me will be different from what is great for you. And even, like, further than that, when it comes to this, I just lost the point I was making, when it comes to the subjectivity of greatness, how greatness is subjective, it also depends on, like, the lens you look at it through. And the example that we talked about on the podcast was, like, Philip Sace, who my previous interview with Fred Mandel, who's a session touring musician, who actually kind of floated this concept of the dilution of greatness by me is that he knows this guitar guitarist named Philip Sace. And he says he's one of the greatest guitar players that's probably ever lived, arguably one of the best guitar players on the planet right now. And nobody knows him. I checked recently, he has less than 300,000 monthly listeners on Spotify. And he's one of the greatest guitarists of all time. And I mean, obviously like the part of this is that guitar's cultural relevancy has dwindled, the music tastes of the general population have changed, but Fred's idea he's like, that greatness has been diluted. And I'll explore more of that in then, essay I'm working on about the dilution of greatness, so we're not going to get into it a ton here, but what Kieran was saying on that is like, Philip says is a phenomenal guitar guitarist, in like the Jimi Hendrix sense, but he's not a phenomenal guitarist in the Joe Pass, set. and Joe Pass is like a jazz guitarist. And so if you asked either of them to do each other's art, they wouldn't be as good, they wouldn't be as great. And so, greatness is one, dependent on your taste, but greatness is two, dependent on the context of that pert that, that, that artist, that art is viewed within, right? Like, if you asked, I'm trying to think of a better example, right? Like, I don't know, I'm, I'm blanking now, but like, look at this way, if you asked like, Quentin Tarantino to make a YouTube video, it probably wouldn't be as great as Mr. Beast. Vice versa, if you asked Mr. Beast, who's a great YouTuber, to be able to make a a film, you probably wouldn't be as good as Quentin Tarantino. And so the context in which someone has viewed him and some context in which art is viewed in can impact whether it is great or not. And like, what even is greatness, right? Like I found this definition, which is like, it is famous and eminent. And eminent is like, or it's like well-known and, and eminent or something like that. And eminent is like famous and respected and that to me is like that is greatness where it's known but it's also respected but then again like what is the level of known that counts to be something great right like kieran talked about how there are people who are great who had massive influence that went on to influence some of the greatest artists of our time that like no one knows about because they weren't just like they weren't given the opportunities to be known and the, one of the examples he talked about was Jay Dilla, who had an incredibly influential influence on the New York and Detroit sound, but it was just kind of underground and only really made noise in those two markets and didn't really exceed too far beyond that. But he influenced all the people, a lot of some people there, like even someone that I am personally a big fan of, John Bellion. He was heavily influenced by Dilla and like Bellion is even similar where like he's pretty relatively unknown in the grand scheme of things, but his influence is felt heavily throughout the music that's being made today. Like he just produced the entire Jonas Brothers album. And he's producing other albums and writing songs. Um, he wrote ghost for Justin Bieber. Like he's just incredibly influential, but he's not as well known as he could be. And so was like, is is he great if he's not as well known? So what is greatness? And I, I like the idea that it's, it's known and respected, right? Like The Meg 2 recently came out and everyone wanted to watch it. It was really well known, but is like really that respected? Is it really influential? Does it have an impact? I don't think so. So I don't think considered great. I don't think we can look at fame or relevancy as a proxy for greatness. I really like the idea of eminence, of, of known and respected. And kind of on that, when when it comes to guys like Dilla or different people, curious something that I thought was really interesting which is that people get as much recognition as they deserve. And that's not to say that like someone who doesn't have a ton of recognition isn't great, what that means is like, there's all people have different tastes. And sometimes what is known by everybody is safe, that the most popular stuff is safe to like, because you know, a lot of other people like it. So you like that, but sometimes the greatest people are ahead of their time. Like in the movie context. I was looking at this recently, I was writing writing this essay. One of the greatest films of all time on IMDb is the highest rated film ever, The Shawshank Redemption. Didn't even recoup its budget at the box office. The budget of that film was $25 million. It made $16 million at the box office. It is one of, if not the greatest film I've ever made. You could argue it was just ahead of its time. Same thing with Blade Runner. Blade Runner tanked at the box office and now is a cult classic. It's a cult following. Sometimes, movies are ahead of their time. And when something's ahead of its time, it's not obviously going to reach critical mass. It's only going to be appreciated by a select few, by people with great taste. And what Kieran said was like, it's interesting, like when you go to a show with someone who you know is really good, you know they're great and they're underrated. Then you go into that room and you know everybody there has great taste. And there's something special about that. And so you might necessarily be the most known, but maybe that's not what you deserve. Because there's a certain, again, there's a level of safety that's required to be well-known in order to be great, in order to make an impact, to influence, you have to be different. In order to be different, you have to take a risk. And in taking that risk, it might result in you not being as famous as you possibly could be, but as a result of that you make something greater. You know, another thing Tier talked about was how money is a cage that could prevent you from working on your craft. I wonder how I kind of interpret that that you become known for a certain thing and so you don't want to lose, you don't want that money to dry up so you keep doing the thing that people will pay you for and you just do it over and over and over and over again. But because you do that, it prevents you from exploring and trying new things and taking those risks and trying to be great. So therefore, money is the cage that prevents you from working on your craft, that prevents you from becoming great because if you stop working on your craft, you stop being great. If you just keep recycling what you're known for in order to keep money coming in, obviously that's going to you're you're going to lose that your greatness. And so sometimes, to be great, you have to sacrifice potential financial rewards. Not that you can't still make money and not live a solid life being underrated. It's not what I'm saying, but like the excessive financial rewards, you might sacrifice some recognition. But as a result, you'll make something great and you'll have a greater impact on the industry, on the world, as a result. The next thing, I'm actually going to talk about this already, is to 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 use your gift, is to explore your process. But this one is in a similar context, slightly different angle, but it's like to use your gifts, but explore them. You know, doc like this came out of our, our brief chat around Queen and how Queen was always evolving their sound and they were, but the way they did it was they weren't necessarily trying to do something new. They were trying to just not do what they did before. And they did that by finding new ways to do what they were good at. You know, like they didn't start trading instruments around and changing singers. Like they, they knew what they were good at and they continued to do that, but they didn't, you know, they, what they were, the way I, the way I like to put it is they knew what bricks they used to build the house, but they would build the house differently every single time. You know, they wouldn't—they wouldn't stray from what they were good at. But they would use how what they used their gifts in different ways. They explored different ways of using what they were good at. You know, Kieran talked about how it's like they explored by walking on their—they explored by using their feet to get around. They didn't try to explore by walking on their hands. So as you explore, as you try new things, do so through the lens of what you are good at, and use your gifts when you explore. We got a couple takeaways here. I can't believe these like this is we're over 40 minutes here. I remember these takeaways used to be like 15, 20 minutes. And I'm just enjoying because I don't do them every week. So I just kind of sit down. I enjoy chatting with you. I enjoy doing I say chatting with you because I know you're listening, but it really it's like me just rambling to myself. So maybe I just like listening to myself talk. But like this I'm having fun with these. And it's just a little bit more content for you. So I think we all win, right? I hope you enjoy these. I really do. These are fun for me, so I hope they're fun for you. And coming back to the the idea of keeping the process fun and not necessarily as serious, one of the things that Kieran does is like idea farms. And really, I think it's what we all kind of do as creative people, but it's like, you have an idea, you don't necessarily execute on it right away. You kind of like plant the seed and let it grow. And then when it's time to harvest it is when you create. I think that happens with a lot of us. Like this idea for my current essay of the dilution of greatness has kind of been percolating on my mind for a while and I eventually decided to go for it. It was the right time. The Simon Sinek essay I want to write is all around game theory in his book, The Infinite Game, titled How to Win YouTube. So it's like the idea has been planted and it's kind of just like growing right now in my brain. The Salvador Dali one, I'm not entirely sure whether it's going to be. And there's a couple seeds that have been planted, one of them being around the importance of commercialism in art. And I feel like as creatives and artists, we tend to want to push back on commercialism but there's actually a really important place for it in art. And so that's kind of like the seed that's planting. And eventually when it's time to harvest it, I will harvest it. That's what Kieran does with his songs, right? Like he just plants these seeds. And I just thought that was a fun way of call, a way of looking at it is idea farming. You know, you plant the seed of an idea when it's when time to harvest it, you can harvest it. The next takeaway here was just a brief aside that Kieran mentioned about David Bowie, how he released one of his greatest albums either shortly shortly before he died. Like it was to proof that, you know, he was still going for it. That's what I want. I want to still be going for it. I want to still be taking my shot. I don't want to settle. I don't want to release something that I think is my opus, whatever, in whatever field that is, and just kind of like rest on my laurels after that. I wanna always be going for it. I always want to be trying to be great, to make something great. I just love that. And not necessarily from the context of legacy, right? Because like we talked about on the podcast, like legacy is a bit of a fool's errand. Cause not only not only do you have no control over it, but you won't be around to experience it. And so it's like, don't create with the legacy in mind, create with the impact you want to have it, right? Cause you can't out how to put this. Yeah. Like I said, I mean, I'm basically saying, I said again, where it's like, you can't control your legacy, right? Like it's how other people perceive you. And if you could control it, then change how people perceive you now. Like you can do it to an extent, but it's really out of your control. Especially after you die, things change. People perceptions change. The culture changes. Like you really don't know. What you can do is is control. Not I mean, but you can control the the legacy. You can't control legacy, but you control the impact you have to an extent, right? It's like what do you care about? What can you impact in one person today that will impact someone the next person? Like I'm trying. To, it's like to create the ripple effect across generations is all you have to do is you have to make a big enough splash that on the right people. I feel like I'm losing the thread on this one, but the intent is you want to have a message, something that resonates with someone so deeply that it changes how they view the world and it changes how they act. And because it changes how they act, it changes how someone else, the next someone, the people they interact with view the world and it will change how they act. And because of that, it will change how the people around them view the world and it will change how the people around them act. And that like ripple effect happens because you're able to change the mindset of one person. And that to me is how you look at legacy and I'm like, will people remember me? Because they won't. They won't remember you. They won't remember your art. And that's a scary thing to think about. And a scary thing to even think about It's like, I feel like I'm even saying that not fully wrapping my head and comprehending what that means. But truly legacy is a fool's errand. But it's still worth going for. Like just going for it to make something great, to impact people with your art is still great. It's, the way I guess really what I'm trying to say is don't look at a legacy of a way of being remembered forever. Look at your legacy as a way of impacting people for for generations. The next takeaway here, which I thought was interesting, kind of came near the end. is like sometimes the idea of something is, off, is better than the thing itself. You know, like the example Kieran gave was like, Paris can be so romanticized and idealized. And then you get there and you're kind of just like, oh, you know, his example was you go to the bathroom and then you're just like, oh, I'm just like peeing in Paris. Like sometimes, just the the, the idea you have is something really in your head is better than it than it actually is. And and Paris, even like Paris is beautiful, and I I haven't been in almost ten years, over ten years. Oh my God, it's been over ten years. Growing up is weird, but it's a bit, it's a little dirty. It's busy. It's cr- like you just create these perceptions in your head, and sometimes that's not the case. And you know, I. I think it works in both ways sometimes, right? Like in how you think things will be and how you wanted them to have been. I wrote a short film once. I entered into a screenwriting competition. I didn't win, but I was considered for the finals. And I think I might've actually, I don't know if I took this line out, but it's the most beautiful line I've ever written, in my opinion. And it was a line of dialogue that said, nothing ruins a memory like reality. Because when we look at things in reverse, like when we create these memories... Sometimes we create, oftentimes I feel like, we create the most idealized version of that memory and that's not actually how things went. And so if you had the chance to relive that memory, it would actually ruin the memory for you because you would see the reality of the situation and it wouldn't be as you remembered it and it would ruin the memory. So nothing ruins a memory like reality. And you know what? I think that's a great place to end it. I had a point here on how you shouldn't lean into mental health as your primary creative force, not that can become kind of a vice, which is true. And this is, not you know if I have the nuance and the capability to broach that conversation. I guess I'll just kind of summarize what Kieran said, is that like, you can make art about your experience. You can acknowledge the mental health issues, but do your best to work on it. Like, don't sit in the mud because you think it makes you a better artist. Don't let it become a crush. Don't let it become a vice. Work on yourself. You can make art about your experience, but don't suffer just to make your art. That's a cool spot. Not cool, but like that's. I thought that was a good way of framing it. Cause you, I think it was, is it David Lynch, the director who, who won't go to therapy cause he don't think, doesn't think he'll be a great creator, a great director if he does that. Um, her comedians say that too, how like, it might have been Burt Kreischer, honestly, <laughs> how like therapy won't make you a worse comedian. Like it won't. And so don't just like, don't let your men don't let your mental health become a vice don't let it become a crutch for your creation but really at the end of the day i have was much more much nicer note to end the podcast by saying that nothing would ruin a memory like reality so we're gonna leave it there um i appreciate you for taking the time to listen to this podcast we are almost 50 minutes in here uh, if you enjoyed the interview with kieran if you're kieran slash kubla if you enjoyed this takeaways please subscribe to the podcast leave us a positive rating and review that helps new people find the show um if you'd like a little bit more from me you can always subscribe to my newsletter it'll be linked in the shows down below as well i think i'm going to call it Artwell. i'm going to change the name it's just my name right now but i'm going to call it Artwell. um so you can subscribe to that and the link down below as always i appreciate you for listening we'll talk soon